Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. This episode of Zach on Film is brought to you by HelloFresh. HelloFresh, it's cooking made easy. You know how HelloFresh works. Every week, their chefs create delicious recipes. You pick what you like. Maybe shrimp. Maybe chicken. Maybe steak. Maybe you want vegetarian. They've got it all. They're delicious meals, too. Believe me. You pick what you like. They send you the exact farm-fresh ingredients straight to your door. No need to worry about going to the grocery store, worrying about whether you have an ingredient in your cupboard. All you need to do is worry about spending 35 minutes to make a delicious meal for you and your loved ones. HelloFresh. HelloFresh.com. Check this out. If you go over to HelloFresh.com right now and you enter the code MAJOR50 at checkout, you're going to get 50% off your first weekly delivery. Thank you, HelloFresh, for sponsoring this episode of Zach on Film. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I have skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. In 1915, a super racist film titled The Birth of a Nation was released and it is still considered one of the most innovative films ever created. A mere 41 years later, another film released falls into some of the same categories. Let's discuss The Searchers this week on Zach on Film. Nicely handled, Baruka. Uh, this, the Searchers, John Wayne, John Ford. Yes, This is the Johns. Uh, 1956. Um... I will just say it, it was one of the first movies inducted into the Library of Congress's um, National Registry. Yes. In 1987. I've often talked before on this podcast and other podcasts that for the longest time, I hated Westerns mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. a passion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just the fact that they weren't interesting. They had no action. They were full of stereotypes. Just hated them until I sat through the Man With No Name trilogy. And said, oh, these can actually be interesting again. We sat down and watched The Searchers this past week. Yeah. And I got to say, I hate Westerns again. <laughs> <laughs> I sat there through this whole movie just going, God, I hate this movie. And God, I hate Westerns. <laughs> I, I don't like this movie at all. Uh... I, and and there, you know, with the exception of in some of the ways that Ethan is portrayed in this movie. I see very little reason for people to put this on a national treasury listing. Yeah. Um, so I've actually seen this movie before and it actually has a nice little place in my heart, mainly because uh, my <laughs> the opposite. Well, I mean, for different, completely yeah, different yeah, yeah. reasons. Uh, my grandpa watched Westerns all the time mm -hmm. and this is the first one. And one of the few that I actually sat through the whole thing, I watched it with him and that was probably 12, 13 years ago. So it was a long time ago. I was pretty young then. Yeah. Um, yeah, you were 12 or 13. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Uh, so from that aspect, uh, and just some of the lines Ethan John Wayne says in this movie, he said, my dad has said before, like, that'll be the day, he says that all the time. Right. Um, wow. And so th that's just uh, like a part of my life that is connected to this movie. Not necessarily about the movie at all, just the fact that it resonated with my childhood and everything. Uh, that being said, I watched this movie again last night, uh, and I would agree. I mean, this movie has 100% rating on Tomatoes, which, take it or leave it, that is a way that influences right. a lot of movies and stuff. Right. And that's pretty freaking high, even mm -hmm. with movies we watch. Yeah. Very few have hit the 100% mark from the critic standpoint. Um, so, Rodrigo, why, why. why does this have a 100% rating? Uh, well, probably a couple of reasons. Um, one, uh, it came out at the peak of, um, both Westerns and John Wayne's career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was like, I don't know, like immediately post ER Clooney, something like that. I don't know. It's hard to, 
hard to hard to place it in in today's uh environment i mean this is the probably the peak of john ford as well and we've talked john ford before about how he really decided to take the landscape and really wrap it around and and, and make it an integral part of the story and and here the landscape does and certainly using a uh, yeah. What is it? Vista Technicolor format yeah. with yeah. an ultra and wide, is, and it is mm. a Technicolor movie. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean oh, it is man. just super rich, saturated mm-hmm. red mountain it, rock. But, but you know this was you know this <laughs> horses <laughs> splashing on mud, and you can see like the yeah, yeah, individual yeah. mud molecules. Uh, you know, from that from that standpoint, the very flatness of the West, the widescreen adaptation mm-hmm, plays mm-hmm. very well together with the spires of uh, monument valley shooting upwards mm-hmm. really creates a lot of starkness and contrast in the environment and how are people supposed to survive and thrive in these harsh harsh conditions mm-hmm. i find it interesting and i know that there were a few reviewers even uh, back when this movie came out a few reviewers were very disappointed that you know, you're shooting all of this stuff outside, and yet there are many scenes that are done on set yes. that you can clearly say look like a set, mm-hmm. and you really should have just shot it on location. Yeah, yeah, you'd think, but we live in Kansas. Yeah, we, we know that it's windy all the time. It never stops True. being windy. But uh, you know, to do a night scene, one what? There's only a couple. Oh, there's a lot of night scenes. There's a lot of day for night well, scenes that we've talked day about. Day for night. Anyway. One, one, one specific night, night scene. scene. The one specific night scene where he shoots Fetterman mm-hmm. um, yeah. didn't have to be shot on a soundstage. Right. You know, you could have found a location for that, probably within 10 feet of where they were actually shooting uh, the uh, the exteriors. Mm-hmm. Um, now, granted, I can see some of the winter scenes, especially that one scene where they're framed very nicely with mm-hmm. the tree branches yeah, the and the snow is falling them, yeah. and it all yes. looks very pretty. But they actually mm-hmm. shot exteriors out in the in the snow and in the freezing conditions. Uh, but, you know, it takes five. It it takes very little time to set up one medium shot when you're now, doing all of the choreography for wide shots. All, a lot of this movie's budget probably went into John Wayne. So yeah. every every time you go outside, you're relinquishing a certain amount of control. True. Mm-hmm. Now so there, anytime that we're like, oh, we can shoot this inside, is like, do they move in this scene? No. Soundstage. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, Soundstage. You know, I think it's Anything a I think that didn't require film, a live force. I don't no, know. Even the soundstage I, stuff has had horses on them. I I think that part of the reason this film is remembered is because it is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Even the shots yeah. that are shot on sound stages are just beautifully put together. The sequence with the Fetterman shooting, that's a pretty massive soundstage when you look at it. I mean, it's it's not like you know, like a sitcom level thing. We're talking right, like right. a really large area with a, a, a peak that's a good 10, 15 feet high. It's, I mean, there's some interesting stuff that's on a soundstage where they seem to be crossing like a river or a marsh. Yeah, and all and those you things you that, can build. I mean, all those things you can build yeah, easily yeah. into a into a soundstage. I mean, soundstages are, are huge and, and massive and, and Maybe that's why. Maybe they built those specifically for those set pieces so they'd have – the area that they wanted where they could, you know, walk across that marsh into the little wooded area or they could have them lying down in the thing and then Fetterman could come up on the peak. I think that even the soundstage shots, while they do look different and they're clearly on a stage, yeah, but they don't necessarily change the, the gorgeousness of the, of the film for me. Honestly, they did all of the exact same shots on a soundstage that they did in the wild. Sure. They just didn't shoot that in the wild for all whatever right. reason. I mean – there are camping scenes maybe, that are shot outside. Maybe they there were maybe, are, maybe they were reshoots. Maybe they maybe they just couldn't mm-hmm. go back. And that's the other thing. That's that's a very actually that's a very important point in shooting outside. Is that sometimes it's incredibly difficult to recreate all yes, the conditions be, that yes. were present mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. when you are doing something outside. You know, if it's a little bit cloudier, it'll look completely different sometimes. Oh, absolutely. Well, with day for night, it well, all looks like crap. Anyway, true. Right, so. right. There are yep. there are two things that I really found interesting, especially as a Ford movie from the visual standpoint, is that we open with a door. Yeah. And everything else is black. Now, again, this was shot, and I need to say this was shot in um, VistaVision widescreen. And yep. VistaVision has an aspect ratio of... 157 to 4. No, it's not quite that. Um, it is. It gave gives a wider aspect ratio, 1.5 to 1, 
versus the academy ratio, which we know typically as um, widescreen, which is 1.37. So it was wider than that. Um, and it could be shot in one of the very many different uh, recommended aspect ratios for Vista Vision 1.6, 1.85, which is your uh, cinema scope, mm-hmm. and your 2.0, which I believe I want to say Lawrence to, of Arabia. I, I was going to say Lawrence of Arabia. I think was shot like that. So it was it yeah. was still wide. So you can imagine that you're sitting, imagining a John Ford really wide Vista thing, and it opens up with this very narrow vertical shot of a woman framed, mm-hmm. and then as the camera pushes through the doorway. Yeah. The frontier, it's almost like the curtains of a play opening. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And we're seeing everything. And then flip that around to the end Mm -hmm. of the movie. Mm -hmm. Everybody's taking their bow like Mm -hmm. you would at a a play by all coming back through the door. And then the curtain closes. And you go into the house and and, and flip-flop. And especially in the beginning of the film because it totally just comes off like – a like play. a play, absolutely. It, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. everyone's like, "Oh, I'm going to leave the room now to take your go to the room and go play, little boys. We have to have this talk now." And it's right. all very front and center, right? And, yep. and you know, the, everybody gets their little bit of business to oh, do. Yes. When the posse comes in, you know, they're all like set up, up like oh, different, yeah. different. Like one of them sitting, one of them mm-hmm. standing, mm-hmm. one of them's at the table up front. Yeah. The the lady comes up back and forth through the door, and the doors are all set up in such a way that, like, you can see the character yeah. like tick 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 mm-hmm. coming through. Absolutely, when, yeah. yeah. With that opening shot, um, re- recently I say recently within the last two years or so, I saw Hondo, which was in 3D. Mm-hmm. In that opening shot, I could have sworn for a minute that we were in a 3D film because they made a point of going through the door and then yeah, yeah. the wide shot and things pointing at you, and I'm like, wow. But this division, I guess, in its own way, was kind of as much a gimmick as 3D, wouldn't you say? Well, we've, talked about, the, we've talked about the widescreen formats before in that the reason why the widescreen formats came about was because the movies were trying to compete with television. Right. In mm-hmm. the – you know, prior to 1945, 46, 47, um, basically everything was a four-by-three aspect ratio. So right. when it came time for television to come along, it was very easy for television to just say – Oh, we'll just use the same aspect ratio. And oh, by the way, we can take all these films and we can air them on television. Right, right. Well, now, why would I want to go to the theater if I can see it on this little TV? Well, now we have to offer something different. We can offer uh, the widescreen all the way up to the cinemascope and the 3D air conditioning, all these gimmicks that uh, the movie theater employed to bring people into the theater. And cinemascope, this division, widescreen are all yeah. one of these uh, 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 end results of mm-hmm. television coming into the market. Mm-hmm. I think to. I think to um, a benefit of movie and filmmaking, I think the 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 horror of television or the threat of television, and this happens in a lot of industry, Hmm? is when competition comes in, it causes you to innovate. innovate. And unfortunately, to divert off the topic, just briefly, um, I think that's the problem with. The internet right now is that you've got and cable. Right, right. You've got you know basically three conglomerates uh, all controlling the um, the cable and your internet uh, providers, and because they don't have any competition in areas, and, and in fact they even came out and said Cox even said, well, we don't compete with Time Warner yeah, yeah, yeah. because there's no competition between them. There's no innovation now here locally. We kind of see that a little bit differently because we actually had. A competing provider come in for our cable company, and it shook up everything. Yeah, and everybody I scrambled. mean, everybody scrambled to to try to to make adjustments. So I think that in the case of television, it was a great disruptor mm-hmm. uh, for mm-hmm. film in order for them to say, "Hey, we need to shake the dust off our boots." To put it back into the searcher's term, uh, uh, we need to dust off our boots, and we need to do something to make people come back into the theaters. I know. Let's get John Wayne. Everybody loves him. He's been in Westerns and war movies all along this time. Mm. Oh, let's get John Ford, who really understands the Western filmmaking. Let's combine them together and let's create this movie called The Searchers about an incredible racist who Mm -hmm. has a for no other reason just wants to kill Comanches because he hates them. Right. uh, Under the guise of my niece has been kidnapped and uh, I need to go rescue her. And right. so that starts a five-year quest to try to kill the Indian that killed his well, family. So so let me ask you this, Stephen. Is the reason you hate this movie because Ethan is a racist? Well, okay. So here's the problem. 
if you're someone like John Wayne, you could you could try to play Genghis Khan, right? <laughs> and could. fail horribly at that. Um, or you could try to play a racist. If you're going to play a racist and you're a beloved actor, you run a really fine line of having audiences dislike you. And Ethan, by mm-hmm. all accounts, should be a character that you dislike. But well, it should be a character. The, the, you the real the real social risk is the other way around. Right, right, right. Is that, that will be will. right, right? That that people will see this and say, yeah. "Well, John Wayne, who is clearly the protagonist, hates command." Command. Yes. Right. Well, he hates Indians. Well, he, he hates, hates everybody. Right. He hates he hates everybody that's but, not that's not white. But the thing is, throughout the film, the racism curtain is pulled away to show that Ethan's not a bad guy. I mean, you know. If you were going to portray Ethan as this racist throughout the whole movie mm-hmm. and be consistent, he would constantly be badgering um, the kid, um, Polly, Polly, uh, about him being one quarter or one eighth Cherokee or whatever mm-hmm. he is. When right. the whole um, when the whole uh, you traded for a bride scene came up, he wouldn't have been laughing yeah. about it. He would have he would have been. Uh, I don't know. He would have been angry about. He would have been angry about that. that. He was having a, he was having that, a grand old time with that. Yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, there are parts through this piece where he's not consistent in the in my belief, he's not consistent in the portrayal of the character. And yeah. if he was, then the turn at the end, you know, because he he ultimately once he figures out that she's been with the the Indians uh, this long, he's like, well, screw her. She's right, she's worthless. Right. I might as well put a bullet in his head. And he has this bloodlust to kill her in addition to mm-hmm. that entire tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, when he does have that turn at the end and the turn in the movie is a little bit different than the turn in the book where he finally comes to realize that, hey, I need to put aside these differences and this is my family and I need to take her home regardless. That has a bigger cathartic moment for the character. But he doesn't have a catharsis in this movie to where he comes out and says – my feeling has changed right. because he knows that once she's been with the Indians, that she is, in you know, in his mind, worthless. Yeah. Less than Impure. less than. Well, he basically says he's mongrel, less than mm-hmm. human. Right. Subhuman is what they say in the in the movie, I believe. I think and that, he doesn't have the, that. He doesn't have that cathartic moment where he changes. I mean, he's really, you know, in one moment, he's got the gun pointed at her. And if he hadn't been shot by the arrow, mm-hmm. he would have killed her. Right. And then. Fifteen minutes later, he's like, come on, we're going to go home. Right. right. So I would disagree with you that he's not consistent through the entire movie until the end. I think yeah. he's an entire, entirely an ass of a racist the entire movie, and the turn at the end is completely unmotivated, and that ruined the movie yes. for me. The, I agree. The turn at the end makes absolutely well, because he doesn't, no sense. He doesn't have that cathartic no. moment. He doesn't have that moment where he, right. he, he, he no, that, realizes change. No, I agree. But- but, but he is a racist the entire movie. Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think he's consistent in that. I mean, they – well, yeah. There is – and to to just do that at the end makes yeah. no sense. The The only the, way that that turn makes sense is if they fill that five-year gap with him and Paulie actually having deep yes, conversations at the and end. having conversations. And that's what I don't – that's another which, problem with this which, movie. Which there's a little bit of. Yes. Like he comes around to calling him by his name. Yes. And they kind of and, – and I think that's the thing. It's not necessarily that the turn is unmotivated. Is that it's not – Clearly motivated, right? Okay, I'll agree. because I think we don't see what at are. least at least maybe as someone it. who has seen a lot of Hollywood feel good movies, like my expectation was that mm-hmm. it was through interaction with Polly yes. that he came mm-hmm. around because he's always like, "You can't take out Ethan or Uncle Ethan. Don't take out their eyeballs. Yeah, right, Uncle right, right, Ethan, right. don't <laughs> don't kill white girls because they happen to get kidnapped. But, right, right, Uncle right. Ethan." Mm-hmm. Why didn't you tell me I was marrying her? You know, like mm-hmm. there's that that interaction is what eventually brings them around. And so I think that's the, the other big big failing in this movie is that for a movie that's supposed to be full of action, mm-hmm. there is a lot of inaction in this movie. I think yeah. a, a failing from a director standpoint is that Ford spends too much time saying, "Look at my beautiful wide vistas," sure, sure. and not enough personal time with the characters where. You know, he calls him Ethan, Ethan, you know, this time of them having conversations where he's not totally an asshole, but warming up to his adopted nephew and 
having to make that connection there. But you're right. There is there's not a moment where he comes to this realization. Now, there is a theory of why he may have changed his mind at the end. And I don't know if it's spelled out in the book any differently, but um, Ethan goes away for the Civil War and he's gone eight years. Right. The girl. What's her name? Um, Natalie Wood. Lucy. Lucy. She's also eight years old. If you watch the nonverbal interactions between Ethan and his uh, sister-in-law, there's the implication that they had an affair and that Lucy is his daughter. Because he's really surprised when he comes back. He's like, Lucy, oh, I didn't know anything about this. And he gives her his medal, a very special medal Mm -hmm. uh, that's to him. And that would be the only reason for turning it around is this sudden realization that, oh, this is my daughter. And there's the familiar familial bond right. that occurs. That's interesting. That's that's an and interesting read. Worth yeah, weighing on, but still not found in right, really right. anything in the movie, and still makes the end yeah. completely a, like. I, I just I just don't turn. think the character, and it's probably because of the concern that oh, people are going to think this of me, John Wayne, if I play this guy as a total total racist oh. as he should. Don't be. you think yes. it was kind of a? Re- oh, sorry, Matthew, go ahead. We've been cut off. His motivation at the end isn't the only part that isn't motivated because the first time we see Natalie Wood, she says, go away. I don't want you to come save me. There's nothing that explains Mm. to me why she accepts him at the end. But I think throughout the film, he is pretty much shown as an unconstructed son of a bitch, an unreconstructed son of a bitch, rather. And when we get to that end where he has his big heroic moment, it feels like an ending that comes because we've run out of film in a lot of ways <laughs> yeah. because he's the, he's the designated hero at the end of this. Whereas had we gone through and, you know, it's actually Polly who does the saving to me, the, the through line of the story would have made a lot more sense because he's the one who was out there to save her. Agreed. I think a better ending would have been Ethan goes to shoot Lucy. Polly comes, kills Ethan they go home. Yeah, right. that's the right. that's the story, which kind of I think then influenced. I mean, stories. After Debbie that. was I mean, the older daughter. Lucy was the right. younger. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, stories like I mean, they 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 cite the writers of uh, Taxi Driver cite this mm-hmm. movie as Ethan mm-hmm. playing an influence in that and other movies too. So uh, the darker ending makes well, way more sense but for this film. Ethan, Ethan is yeah. a very very dark character. I mean, to go in and say that your potential daughter, even if it's your niece to go into that dark territory of she is She's nobody to me dead. and I will kill her is very dark for a movie yeah. of this time. Yet. Well, but they don't show, they don't spend time doing the, the any thing, action to show how dark of a character he is. This, besides close-ups. The thing is though, is that this is the, the heyday of the Western yeah, yeah, yeah. and the bad guy in the Western is the Indian. Yeah. Which I also have a problem. And with. so this isn't, like to our sensibilities, this is a movie about two sides of a war, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But to their sensibilities, is about our is about us versus them. Mm-hmm. At no yeah. point, I think, were audiences expected to sympathize with any of the Indians. Like yep. Scar is bad; he's mm-hmm. a bad guy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, even Scar, <laughs> yeah, even even the girl. <laughs> That, Wild goose uh, flying in the night sky. Look, yeah, Luke. even the the gay, yeah, look. Uh, even her, she's played for laughs, yeah. and she is. The movie doesn't treat her like a person. No, no. it doesn't. Um, it, and that's what I had a real problem with too. Right, is right. that especially portrayal of the Indians or Native Americans? Sorry, um, but in in the portrayal of that group, it's just nothing but the stereotypes, oh, the sure. racial stereotypes that. Oh, uh, the Indians are are drunk, and the Indians are they wear the funny hat like that all the time. You know, the the bowler cap is. You see that portrayed in a lot of the comical takes on uh, the well, Indian that people. And the, the exchange, right? And is the like, exchange oh, and we all have that. We have don't gold, understand. and they're like, no, we want something stupid instead. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I I oh. had a real problem with that. And and Matthew and I and I think um, Tom Boaz, we all sat in in this watching this movie in um, our film theory class in college. And we just sat there and we marked down every time that there was a horrible stereotype Mm -hmm. portrayed in this movie. And and we ran out of lead in our ink and we ran out of space on our (laughs) paper. And I I just really hate this movie with a passion. Mm. I I think that 
we are running into some of the same problems well, that we had, as Zach said, with Birth of a Nation. Right, right. Um, and, and I think that part of it is, as I'm watching this film, I did, today I was watching it, and I would zone out for a little bit. And I wouldn't be looking at the screen, and then I'd cut back in, and I'd be like, oh, well, this is super pretty. But the, the character work that takes place and the actual cinematography that takes place is really beautiful. But it's, mm-hmm. it's something that allows you to kind of fill in the blanks in your head, which is why your theory about maybe she's really his daughter. Mm-hmm. My theory throughout this reading was maybe Pauly is really his son. Well, he makes a comment, and that's the one thing that also is a little weird because he makes a comment. Um, you know, they, they set it up early in the story where he's saying that uh, how uh, Ethan found the boy and rescued him and brought him to the family. And mm-hmm. then later – and this is the part that's really weird. Um, uh, uh, Martin is going off about how you didn't know about this and where have you been and all these things. And, and Ethan just looks at him and says, well, I knew your mother. Or he made some comment about his, his mother. Mm-hmm. When, he, when they go see Scar for the first time and Scar's trying yeah. to oh, yeah, about the, the scalps, about the scalps. He yeah. knew it was his mother's The scalp, scalp was your mother. But at one point there's that, that scene where they're, they're writing, they're writing. And he's like, don't call me uncle. Right, right, right. And he makes a big deal about don't call me Uncle Ethan. And part of me was like, okay, that that fits into my little theory of the only reason he's tolerating this kid, who is clearly part of the group that he hates, who is somebody who doesn't want around. And we've seen the way he treats people he doesn't want around. Even his friends, like old Mose, he does not treat well. Why does he tolerate this kid hanging around him? Yeah. And I'm thinking this is this is his son. This is illegitimate son brought back to raise by his brother. So I don't know if that's if that's got any you know subtlety to it or not. But the way that he messes with the kid, and the way that he tries to teach him things in that backhanded mm-hmm. bastard way. Now maybe it's just my stepfather's that that makes me feel like this. But I'm like this. This is dysfunctional parenting mm-hmm. strategies in play. Mm-hmm. Even the point where he uses him as bait for the guy who's going to come out and murder them. <laughs> yeah, Fetterman. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm reading this all as as Ethan being a dysfunctional father figure or trying to be whatever he thinks he can be. But it, yeah, you know, the stereotype problem isn't just with the Native Americans. It's also with the Jorgensons. No. I actually yeah. it was funny because we went to a to school with a girl whose last name was Jorgensen, right. which was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but the way that, you know, John uh, Quaylen, who portrays me, that's be sure, you know, yep. that kind of stuff all throughout <laughs> oh, the movie. Oh, you darn the woodpecker, always eating and eating and eating. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then also with the um, the, uh, the the Mexicans, the Mexicans, the, Mexicans, oh, the, the Mexicans. same way as yeah. total is total. Just like I'm just like, oh, my God, that Mexican you know, cantina scene is pretty tough. to get Well, through. and just yeah. so, just so you know, just keep this in mind, because next week when we do um treasure of the sierra madre there's a lot of that same stereotyping sure, that goes sure. on that I, also drives me insane uh, i read that after this movie was kind of a turning point where native american actors said yeah no we're not we're not doing this crap anymore right. we're not yeah, going to yeah, be yeah. portrayed constantly as the worst people on the planet interesting yeah. you want to you want to you guys want to hear my read on this sure on this whole thing okay so um this is a movie that shows a half uh, Native American, basically a half white, half something else person, um, going through and helping a white person who is super racist, um, go do something. Mm-hmm. It's also a movie that portrays somebody going into a different culture, a white person going into a different culture and accepting that culture more than their own, even though at the end she kind of ends up coming back, but it's also probably because the bullets are flying. Right. Mm-hmm. At the end of the movie, you see her new adoptive family come into the house. Mm-hmm. You see the half uh, Native American boy come into the house. And mm-hmm. then the white racist turns around yeah. and walks, walks away. away. Yeah. My read of this movie is the world is changing. There is no room for or uh, for Ethan black and it. white anymore. Yeah, There's yeah. no room for Uncle Ethan in this They're, new melting pot of a world. Well, the miscegenation, yeah. the you know, um, is kind of a I like that uh, goes throughout the film, and their oh, Cosmopolitan magazine Ford said, and this is in a 1964 interview, 
There's some merit to the charge that the Indian hasn't been portrayed accurately or fairly in the Western, but again, the charge has been broad generalization and often unfair. The Indian didn't welcome the white man, and he wasn't diplomatic. If he had been treated unfairly by whites in film, that unfortunately was often the case in real life. There's much more racial prejudices in the West, and this is also tied back into this uh, mixing uh, interracial right, right. Uh, marriage and, and, and um, offspring. So I don't know. I, 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 you are definitely right on that, that, you know, John yeah. Wayne does walk off and he's no longer wanted. We saw that in the, uh, the Magnificent Seven where they realized that, hey, our time of the Wild West cowboy right. is at an right. end. We need to go yep. somewhere where the Wild West is still going on. I don't know why people important. raise Ethan up as, as a high regard as, the, as he does because he's not a likable character and I don't like him. And I think everything he does in this he's, movie is for the wrong reasons. Well, he is a people, complex character yeah, yeah. and he has he's not likable and he's not, you know, one, anything that you want to try and emulate. But there's a lot of depth and especially for 1956, there's a lot of ambiguity in his portrayal. You can watch this and it may be my modern perspective, but you can watch this and say he is an early example of the modern antihero archetype because he's a jerk. Yeah. We don't want to like him. We don't root for him the way we do John Wayne in other movies. And the the telling sequence for me is when he stands nose to nose with Scar in that big, you know, I come to take all of the women back. Waha. It's John Wayne, the icon of the cowboy, standing nose to nose with a very stereotypical but notably less stereotypical Native American character than we would have seen 20 years before. And Scar gets in a shot during that verbal battle where he's mm. like, you speak good Comanche. Somebody yeah. teach mm-hmm. you. Yep. He yeah, gets yeah. the shot. And that's the end of that scene mm-hmm. is the villain getting in a shot on our protagonist to the point where we're like, ha, somebody took and gave him a taste yeah. of his own medicine. And your shirt looks like a tablecloth, John Wayne. Yeah. A, a great example is uh, kind of following that tangent momentarily uh zach have you seen back to the future part three uh it's where he goes back into the west yeah yeah yeah. no just right so in that movie uh doc brown dresses him up basically as john wayne in this movie (laughs) and when he travels back everybody's looking at him like he's insane yeah because he's wearing a pink shirt well and that's that's the problem i mean the beliefs i mean well yeah and he's also got like little uh tassels uh, or tassels but he also has like atomic symbols on on Uh, the on the shirt and he's yeah and everything like that um it's interesting because at the time period, you look at a movie like this and you're like, oh, well, that's how the West was portrayed. That's right. not, you know, we see now we know that that's not the case. And if anybody in Hollywood would have actually opened up a historical well, picture and, book from and, 20 and, years before, they would have been able to see what. And, and part of it is was. part of it is that Technicolor, right? It's yeah. like right. they were like, well, we're not go- we're not going to dress our protagonist in brown, <laughs> yeah. even though that's what people wore. Yeah. So, like, I mean, like, that's the first thing that I thought when you when the movie yeah. opens, like the mom is wearing this like blue is like this Robin's yeah. egg blue shirt. And it is like so blue. And I was like, what Technicolor? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. The vaqueros are a dead giveaway. The lead vaquero in his bright mustard shirt. Yeah. And he's got the well, colorful the colorful sombrero and all of that. I'm like, and again, these guys are designed to be full color. Yeah, and exactly. That's that's the point. Is like at least weirdly in that sense, um, the movie across the board is terrible. It's like um <laughs> It's like, yeah, the Mexicans are wearing like gold leaf stuff on their sombreros, which obviously Mexican merchants slash thieves wouldn't wear. Um, The Indians, all 100% of them, giant headdresses, Mm -hmm. right? Right, With like crazy stuff painted all over them. Yeah, bright red paint at all times Mm -hmm. of the day. Yeah. Um, And the cowboys are all dressed in like pinks and blues. Well, but Mm. I think, again, in hindsight, even though Technicolor is it's brighter, it's supposed to look more real than real, mm-hmm. does a disservice to the overall story. To the story, maybe, but uh, – and, and, to, and to the public's perception of what the West and the people that occupied the West at the time were. Well, this movie in general does a huge disservice to, to all of to that. everybody. Yes. You know the sad part? What's that? I enjoyed it today. I, I found well, that – Well, you don't have to be sorry for that. I mean – you can no, I mean, people, I think people that, like what they like and you shouldn't be apologetic for liking something. 
Oh, I certainly can be. <laughs> but I think that what, I'm what sorry, it really breaks way. down to is I don't ever say that to me again. <laughs> I will come through. Oh. I think that what this breaks down to is this is an accurate period piece for 1956. Yeah. So if you read this now 60 years down the line as – a take on Western life circa 1956, the same way you can look at Ford's earlier movies as the 30s version of the Old West and the 40s version of the Old West. We get to the 1990s version of the Old West with Young Guns, which, by the way, shares a couple of actors with this film, I would like to point out. You see the basically the lens through which history is viewed circa 1950. And it's kind of – it is beautiful, but it's fascinating to see this as – kind of that first edging towards change, maybe accepting that the Indians weren't savages that had to be destroyed in order to, you know, remove a blight from our, our modern, you know, nation and stop our manifest destiny. Maybe they were another culture that we unfairly wiped out. And you see little bits and pieces of that here, not a hundred percent respectfully, mm -hmm. but the character who is overtly racist is never treated as our hero per se. And certainly not the way he would have been if this were a film that came out in 1946. So this is kind of like, you know, watching a, a, a sea change in Westerns. And I think Westerns kind of hit a big peak in the fifties and then kind of really went down in the sixties. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking that maybe the, you know, the expectations and the changing realities and people coming to terms with the reality of the old West, not being what we expected, Kind of led to that decline. Well, and the, this the, movie uh, could be part of that. The the old uh, prospector from Toy Story, mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. has like one of the best theories, which is that you know it used to be all cowboys, and then Sputnik yeah, went up then, into the air, yeah. and then away. it's like boom, yep. it's all space. Yeah, that's like that's my theory. Space. Nuclear bomb, sure, same sure. way. As soon as the nuclear bomb came out, space. we entered that space. science age. That's when it all changed. Now, keep in mind, uh, all genres are cyclical anyway. Sure. Um, probably mm -hmm. the biggest example of a cyclical genre is the horror genre mm -hmm. that comes in yep. and then goes out and then comes every in and ten goes years. out every ten, twenty years. And like I think we've top. seen kind of the, the same thing with, with Westerns. Sure. And this is definitely the going out of uh, yes. of the Western in that form. Now, Spaghetti Westerns right. probably hadn't been, sure. um, you know, hadn't fully come into the United States um, mm -hmm. in, in their original form. Um, those were in the 60s and 70s and, and was really a different kind of film, very much like the same way that you could have an American kung fu movie right. and then you actually had mm -hmm. a real kung yeah, fu movie. Kung fu movie. Yeah, so um yeah i do want to keep that in mind that all yeah. genres are, are cyclical also the the realization that i had halfway through this movie that changed it for me forever and changed everything that i know about the universe not necessarily related to the overarching themes but interesting nonetheless 1956 okay we see the whole thing where he's writing home to Lori, the girlfriend and Lori, the girlfriend, is angry because he's he's not in love with her, right? And she's got the handsome young suitor with the guitar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ten years later, that man becomes Festus on Gunsmoke. That's mm -hmm. Ken Curtis, who grows up to be Festus Hagen and talk like this for 20 years on television. Ten years earlier, I'm looking at this, and he's the handsome young lead who's singing the guitar and playing that thing up that he's related to John Ford, I believe. <laughs> but that moment really kind of you know got my whole theory of you can see the history of the time that they the westerns are being made rather than seeing the actual history of the old west it's interesting to me and i i just thought i'd share that fastest moment which is good 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 let's give a shout out to our associate producers here real quick because they are super awesome and we want to recognize them for all that they do antonio juan suarez colon antonio Arzeus Paul Lundenberg, Lorenzo Quiones, Ryan Johnson, Bill Schweigert, Mark Brunson, Alexander Pareda, Carl Stenberg, and Justin Higgins. Thank you for all that you do in supporting Major Spoilers and letting us produce more free content for you each and week, going, going, forever and ever. And ever and ever and ever. And ever, never, 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 never. Thank you so much. You guys want to hear another read that I have on this? Sure. I like your first nope. one. Um, so... Uh, I'm glad that Matthew brought up the letter because I had like, I'd, I'd kind of gotten into this and then uh, during the discussion, you know, we've been talking about other things, but I forgot about it. 
But um, you can look at this movie as it starts out as Ethan's story. Mm-hmm. And then once we hit the letter, mm-hmm. it becomes Polly's story. Right. Yeah. Um, and then from there on out, it's all like basically, you, you know, even though these two characters are standing side by side, it's almost like they go. And now we're like mm-hmm. framed within the context of Polly because we suddenly get this inner monologue and the letter feels super weird compared to mm-hmm. everything that's been happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of a sudden we have this, like it, it really feels like the letter takes us by the ears and like points us at a different character than what we've been doing so far. And maybe it's this like unsubtle way of saying, actually this has been Polly's story all along. Mm-hmm. And he's the one who has to deal with this Follow. highly capable person who is the driving force to this, but it's up to him to keep him under control. And I think that's something else that helps that read of like, it's through this uh, interaction with Polly that he, um, that Ethan softens up by the end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ethan makes the save at the end, but throughout the movie, it's Polly who insists that they're going to save the girl. Right. 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 Ethan, Ethan is like, she's better off dead. And I'm on his shooter in office. And then you you get to the moment where he inexplicably changes his mind, and she inexplicably decides to go with yeah. him. Right. right. You kind of look at that as maybe she's looking at that and going, "Well, this is Uncle Ethan. Maybe he's that authority figure." And you know, she's Im- implicitly as a character saying, "Okay, you know, for whatever reason, he's driving the plot. She's going to accept it from him, whereas she wouldn't from Polly. But he's our actual. Polly is our actual." Actually, Hero. that's that's a good point because the initial mm-hmm. pitch to get her back comes from Ethan, and she doesn't want to. Right. When Polly goes to get her, she changes her mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. In so there's five years of stuff that's really not accounted for that we can assume uh, Polly and Ethan are having conversations right. about mm-hmm. life and like like racism and stereotypes and cultures and stuff and snakes right. and snakes obviously because snakes are horrible. Don't step on the sharp end and. Uh, so, he he. So in this theory, he takes a liking to Polly, mm-hmm. uh, tries to get Lucy back. Lucy doesn't want him because he's a horrible person. Uh, but he saves her at the end, but doesn't stay with her. So he saves her for a different reason, which is for right. Polly. Right. He say he saves yeah. her. By the way, it's it's Debbie, and that's that's a good this, reading. You also yeah. yes, you you look at the point where. Debbie's the older sister. Lucy's the younger one. I misspoke earlier. It's yeah. Lucy's Polly. the older one. He saves her. It's Polly. No, Lucy's murdered. Debbie is the sister. Oh, okay. She's the okay. little sister who grows up and lives. Okay. But it's Polly who actually shoots Scar. Right. Polly mm-hmm. is the one who actually right. kills the villain of the, of the piece. And you know, from a 1956 perspective, I don't know if that's if that's meaningful or not, but it fits into the read that. We start with the expectation that this is all about Ethan, and then as we find out that Ethan's a bastard, we slowly focus on the character who's actually going to be able to survive the fact that it's 1868 and the Old West isn't going to be around much longer. Which, you know, you, you talk about uh, all the like missed opportunities to, to show that change in Ethan. That would have been a perfect one because we see him. He, like, sees Scar's corpse, pulls out his knife, goes to gouge out his eyes, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, if he had yeah. just gone to do it and then stopped himself because he's had a conversation with Polly about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, then you would have been like, oh, he has changed. And then when that other thing happened, like the ending actually mm-hmm. happens, you would have been like, oh, he has completely changed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Doesn't he I don't scalp he... him as well? Yeah, he scalps him. Oh, that's okay. what it is. Yeah. 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 I, uh, I just don't think that he, I just don't think that he changed. And I think that there were too many times where they showed him as a softer character mm-hmm. when they really mm-hmm. should have taken out those parts and just left him as this real bastard that, Make it more Polly story and his struggle with yes. dealing with a racist that he has to tag along with in order right. to save his sister. Mm-hmm. Did I miss the scene where John Wayne Jr. stabs Forrest Whitaker in the butt? Or was that merely no, implied? It, it's just implied. Okay. Yeah. By the way, that, that young cavalryman is Patrick Wayne. That's John Wayne's older son. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. That, and that's one of the things you go through this. And you're like, why is this character in the movie? He doesn't seem <laughs> to serve any narrative Right. Uh, no, thing it's like here's a part here's a part for your boy john <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about some very good visual there are some very good visuals in this film yeah, yeah. um 
and and you know other people can argue that this is a is a good story um and you know it is based on some true events many true events uh this is based on a book um and did ride horses went, and wear hats and the author did go out and um there are about nine events uh, that really happened that bits and pieces are are incorporated to create these new this new character in this story so you say this is a rip from the headline story mm-hmm. um but what what did you get from this movie what did you learn from this movie what can you adapt and utilize um, for your own from this movie I mean, so we've talked when you when we talk about like Dana color and so we talked about huge formats and wide scopes before we looked at uh, they get back to the ugly and uh, Lawrence of Arabia, how they're able to capture scenery and uh, just kind of wow audiences, essentially. Uh, and there's a lot of that in this. And not even just like travel, like, oh, they're traveling through this desert high plains thing. Um, I mean, the, the, the charge on the camp at the end is unbelievably fascinating from a, a standpoint of how fast they were moving a camera yeah, yeah. to keep up with the yeah, horses. On a big truck, yeah. Yeah, that was nuts how fast and how steady that shot is. But it's also, incredible. if I remember correctly, Ford did something similar to this in John Wayne's first movie. Uh, what was that called? The Cavalry? I don't know. I haven't watched um, it. Let me look up John Wayne's... Uh, Wayne's first? I thought Wayne's first movie was Stagecoach. Stagecoach, that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. And they did something similar in in that movie. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, that is impressive, Yeah, but it's also at, at times seems very kind of staged because it's like, okay, the truck's moving now, everybody charge at the same time and stay all in a line and run sure, through the, sure. through well, the camp I mean, in this way. Sure. Every giant horse scene we've seen in Lawrence right. of Arabia, any film is uncompletely staged because you have no, a no, no, whole no. lot of animals go, running Okay. So go, go, go back and look at Lawrence of Arabia and look how, um, David Lean uses depth in the shot to where uh, horses are spread out in the z-axis away from the audience as well as on the uh, x-axis, the left and right part of the of the view. Mm-hmm. And look how all those animals can be spread out and, and having uh, having a charge. And then watch this scene where yeah, it's clear that they've, line. They've, mm-hmm. they've got like very limited amount of money left to do the tents and there's like just – Two rows of tents, and mm-hmm. they just have to run right down the middle of that as opposed to a camp, which would be more circular in nature uh, to go well, in sure. and, and charge sure. through there. So, But you're right. It is an impressive shot. Um, so that's very good. I mean, we talked about the silhouette shots um, in the beginning of the film, and those were just unbelievably like, oh, this mm-hmm. is a movie. You should watch it on film. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, and actually – Weirdly, there was actually some weird, subtle camera movements when they're inside the house yeah. that I wasn't really expecting from a film coming out in this time period, especially with their shot selection, which is all very medium or super wide. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did watch this film with Aubrey mm-hmm. last night, and she uh, hated how racist season was. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. also hated how the Native Americans were portrayed, especially... She's like, every time they show them on screen, they just do the evil music. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Well, that's well, yeah, pretty the, much what they do. Well, but not only is it the quote unquote it's, evil music, it's but the it's, stereotypical it's the stereotypical American Indian powwow music. I just, I just yeah. like, uh, anytime Scar shows up, I'm just captivating by how blue his eyes are. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That actor is actually German and yeah. made his made his living doing character bits in other uh in basically other other races and other mm-hmm. uh genetic people he uh did notable turn and i can't remember the movie now dang it and it was a really cool thing anyway he he had a thing in yellow face and it was incredibly offensive in retrospect but it's one of those moments where as you're watching the movie unless you know that it's a caucasian person in yellow face you think well this is just kind of a, a a guy that they got to come in here and they actually got somebody who looks mm-hmm. vaguely asian for the role so <laughs> i did love the shot where she runs out to the to the little boneyard and she's sitting there and she looks up and the shadow comes yeah. over uh, her yeah. yeah very good that's beautiful and that's day for night isn't it no that no, was that, on a that, set. Was, that was just day day that was on a set yeah. um, that's that's a dark shot and then I mean, I think one of the most iconic shots that I can remember of this is her running up over the sand dune, kind of down to them, telling him to leave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of 
super like deep focus shots in this, which yeah. I'm always just like fascinated with because mm-hmm. you don't really see anything like that yep. in films nowadays, and it's just an interesting. Well, but but also some uh, distracting deep focus shots because right. when sure. you're yes. when you're in that house, the house is full of stuff mm-hmm. and yes. everything's in focus. Yeah. 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 Whoa! Wait, what's that on the back? Yeah, wall? exactly. It's like. Wow, I can't believe they have all that whole set of plates. Yeah. Every plate. And I had the problem where the girl from uh, from uh, the James Dean movie that we saw, Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood, is playing the child. And she runs down and she's having this argument. And I suddenly realized in the middle of the argument that the actor who plays Martin Pauly is Captain Pike from Star Trek, the original series. So I'm sitting here watching the girl from West Side Story yell at a guy from the 23rd century. Totally took me out of the movie. Uh, part of the reason why such deep, <laughs> deep shots, uh, deep depth of field mm-hmm. um, is to make it, again, hyper real for the audience, mm-hmm. because that's how you're going to kind of see things in real life without, yeah. you know, just being sure, sure. just the, the things shallow don't, depth. Things don't blur out. Which it works. And then, and then the other thing, too, is if you're going to show the grandeur of everything that we're shooting outside, you have to use that deep depth of field to capture mm-hmm. the beauty that is Monument Valley, which is sure. nowhere near Texas. Right. Um, so yeah, there, there's some reasons to do that from the from the aesthetic perspective, but you're right; it does end up drawing the viewer away if you're like, oh, "There's too much going on in this in this shot." So I wonder if there's someone who lives near or around Monument Valley watching this and going, "This whole five years of movie takes place in the same three quarter miles of territory." <laughs> Probably this is that this shot is well, ten those, years later. There, no, there are. I mean, you can go to those locations now. Uh, you yeah. can go. You can go up to uh, uh, sites like Artbeats that's to sell mm-hmm. stock footage, and you can find those exact same locations for right. your for your movie. For Granted, your that movement on. back then was a lot more difficult, so it's not that yeah. crazy that this whole mm-hmm. movie happens within the the, oh, yeah, the yeah, span yeah, of yeah. like yeah, sure. a state. Yeah. Now, is the cave where they hole up after the first attack the same cave where he finds Natalie Wood at the end? No, it's different. It is looks it, the same. Is it actually different. different? Okay, it's different. I didn't know if it was actually different or if it was just a redress of that same set so that we can use two different caves. So one thing, Zach, that I think you should think about this is like this movie kind of beats you over the head with it. But uh, um, thematically speaking, uh, bookends for a movie, for a piece can really strengthen it. So Mm -hmm. as you're writing your pieces, think to yourself, how is the ending of this piece like the beginning of this piece? You know, what can I do to bring that into a circle or to show that uh, difference or anything like that. Look, and again, look at some movies like um, uh, how the West was one uh, is another good one that kind of bookends kind of in the similar fashion. Um, so that's Sergio Leone. Um, i trying to think of another one that really bookends it in the exact same way. Uh, it'll come to me after we're done recording, uh, but there's at of least course. one other that kind of um, ends the same way it begins. Uh, and it's powerful, mm-hmm. uh, but it yeah. is, but it can take you out of the out of the picture at the same time. Heavy metal sure. does that kind of. Ends yeah, 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 not a good movie, but yeah. Eh, yeah, heavy metal's all right. Heavy metal's cool. All right, Zach, why don't you uh, take us out? All right, that's going to do it for this week of Zach on Film. Make sure you over to com where you can find this podcast posting page and give all your thoughts about the things we've discussed this week. With the searchers, while you are there, make sure to click on that Amazon.com link where you can go buy all of your favorite Western movies or uh, any favorite movie. The Lego movie just came out. That's exciting. You can go buy that, your very own copy. It's not going to cost you any extra, but a little bit. We'll come back to major spoilers to keep, uh, you know, just to help us out with our weekly expenses. We can keep focusing on making more content for you. So next week, we will be talking... The Treasure of the Sierra Madre on Zach on Film. 